At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. said sometimes with the British film industry it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning let's find out welcome to another Britflix.com podcast today's guest is Lorcan Finnegan director of Vivarium welcome to the show thanks for having me absolute pleasure absolute pleasure and uh, cards on the table absolutely love the film oh, thanks thanks very much it's not everyone's cup of tea, but um, it's well, it's not even tea. So uh, I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed it. It made me feel smarter by the end of the film. Always a good feeling. Well, look, before we go into too much detail, let's tell people how and when they can see the film. Oh yeah, it's available on VOD at the moment on all of the usual things: Amazon, iTunes, Sky, and you know all of those kind of normal streaming services, Google Play. Um, and it is coming out on DVD and Blu-ray on the 25th of May, also, which is my birthday. Yay! Fantastic. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, it's, it's going to be available pretty readily, so there'll be no excuses. So then the natural question is, do you want to give people a brief synopsis as to what the Vivarium is all about? So it is about a young couple who are trying to buy their first home, and they go and visit an estate agent, and the estate agent guy who's working there, this guy called Martin, is a very strange, mesmeric character who um, convinces them to follow him out to a brand new development called Yonder to have a look at a house called Number 9. So they follow Martin out there. They have a look at this place. All the houses look exactly the same. It's quite surreal and strange and a little bit eerie. Um, they look around the house. Martin's being weird. The place is weird. And they think okay, we should get the hell out of here. They turn around, Martin's vanished. It's like, right, so they jump in their car and they try and drive out of the place, but no matter what way they turn, they keep pulling up outside the same house, number nine. And they soon discover that they are trapped there and things start getting progressively worse for the young couple. Yeah, it's um, it's very much a film of, uh, like you say, it's good to be vague in terms of the uh, the sort of pitch of it and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll not, will not venture too deep into spoiler territory. I'll certainly do my best. You credited a story with um, with Garrett Shanley as your as also a story, but but as the screenwriter of it. Um, do you want to give us a sense of what what the sort of kernel of the idea was that that was that was at the heart of what became Bavarian the film? 
Yeah, sure. We made um, a short film in 2011 called Foxes. And Foxes is based on a short story that Garrett Chanley, the screenwriter, had written um, on his blog. Just It was a kind of a first-person short story. But it was very much a reaction to what was going on sociopolitically in Ireland. There was... Um, at the time, the economy was doing really well, and there's all these housing developments getting built all over the country um, without any real thought for community or anything like that. They were kind of a way for builders to make loads of money, and they were availing of these big EU grants, and um, and banks were giving 100% mortgages. So there's all these kind of clone housing developments, a bit like yonder, springing up around the country. And then when the collapse came in 2008, a lot of these places ended up um, empty or unfinished, sometimes with only one or two people living there, and they got dubbed ghost estates. So we made um, a short film set in one of these places, like an actual, a real location, um, about a young couple stuck in this place, and nature started encroaching, and the young woman in the film finds escape by rejoining nature. Um, but while making the short film, basically, we we were just scratching the surface of some bigger ideas and themes and sort of philosophical thoughts around the atomization of society, the loss of community, um, isolation, uh, consumer capitalist kind of uh, landscapes, and the social contract and what that means and um, and what you know what is it that young people are actually afraid of these days and sort of tapping into those anxieties and um so after making the short we started thinking about all of that stuff and that kind of led to um i was thinking you know what if one of these places went on infinitely and was much more of a kind of quantum trap um and that led us into working on vivarium wow so so you obviously you've, you've got quite the working relationship with garrett as a writer and you as a director obviously with the 2016s without name um, so what's wh how does that how does it work between the pair of you? How do you how do you write as it were as a as a partnership to make films? Um, I do all the full stops and characters. <laughs> <laughs> do you pace up and I down know. with just, just yeah, holding yeah. your chin while he types? Yeah, furiously? yeah, yeah. I dictate into an old tape machine. Now, um, Garrett is the writer. Like so, we we come up with ideas together, um, and then and we just disgusting so it you know these things end up going on for years so it's very difficult to tell where how these ideas even form and who thought of what and all this kind of stuff but um garrett will go off and do a draft and then um he'll send it to me and brunella coquilia uh, who's produced um the films that we've made as well and um so it's kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. The story by credit is something that Garrett and I were kind of like, oh, let's do that. But it can be very confusing for people. They think that I'm the screenwriter. Um, but no, Garrett's the writer. I'm the director. No, no, I mean, I do, I, have a similar, I do something similar with um, director Ashley Horner. Um, right, okay. I've worked yeah. on stuff, which is why I was asking. It's, it's just, I think it's fascinating. It's like I, I clearly do the sitting down at Final Draft. Yeah. But me and Ashley do a lot of the fighting over what goes in, what comes out, what stays in, how we develop it, what the idea is and what it's about is very much a conversation between the pair of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a it's an interesting one. And we've been doing it for years. So, so um 
like boxes we made was our first collaboration together and then we did without name and then vivarium and then we're working on two new films at the moment um and they're all in that kind of vein of we come up with the story together and then collaborate back and forth on various iterations of the of the draft and actually both on vivarium and the film that we're working on um not the next one but probably the one after that um we're kind of we do like uh garrett will do a first draft pass you know kind of just um getting everything out there and then we'll go over the first act like maybe two or three times four times i don't know um but like until we're happy with the act and then we'll move on to the second act and then the third act and then do a pass on the whole thing again so that the second draft is actually more like um you know more like a, a third draft or even a fourth draft or like a draft with a lot of revisions because we're going to do the revisions while simultaneously working on the story and then feeding them back into, you know, like sometimes you move on to the second act and um, that would change then a few small things in the first act and, and make those kind of uh, changes then at the end. Now, obviously, there's, there's a huge idea at play in Vivarium with sort of lots of, I guess, what you would call unwritten rules that become kind of clear but not clear all at the same time in terms of it's clear enough for you to understand. But the ultimate the ultimate why is never, you know, is not is not dotted and crossed as a T, as it were. But, but certainly you had a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of threads to loop, sort of link together and stuff. So in that sense, what, what do you remember being the sort of main storytelling challenges for you guys when you when you was in that kind of certainly getting that act two together yeah well i mean i think one of the reasons we actually put in the opening sequence of the film was to explain the why in a in a kind of an abstract way um because of certain parallels um but i mean in terms of the story structure and stuff like that it didn't actually change all that much we we were looking back over a, a first draft um, only recently and we were talking about, you know, the development process and how these things um, evolve. <clears throat> and the actual story itself hasn't actually changed a whole lot in the, you know, I don't know how many drafts over like a good few years. Um, it just kind of got tighter and, um, I, and kind of, probably yeah cleaner and th things were dropped that were unnecessary and then when we got to the end um and we we're going out to actors and they had their notes so they were actually probably the most helpful notes we got um in terms of just giving them some creative input into the into their characters and, and into the overall vibe of the film but in, um, in what, what would what would be an example of something that one of the actors so like, gave, come, to come to you with either a thought or did something specific that lent itself to what the character could be that you hadn't thought of? Well, I think um, in terms of scripts, like a lot of the time script, to us anyway, is more of a sort of sales document okay. that, that readers can read and they'll understand. Do you know what I mean? They'll get it, they'll know what's happening. But you know that, so you, there'd be more exposition. Um, and probably more expositional dialogue in the script <laughs> than is necessary in, yes, the, in the film. 
Of course, yeah. So, like, you know, when you shoot something, an actor can express the feeling by just, you know, raising an eyebrow and changing the facial expressions or something. Whereas you can't really write that into a script um, and people will guess what the intent is. But um, so, like, Jesse thought that they should never reference the weirdness of the environment that they're in um, and thought we should cut out a good bit of his dialogue um, that was slightly more expositional. So notes like that were great because we were like, well, that's that's really helpful because we're probably going to do that in the edit anyway. But when you're on set and you're under such pressure with time and everything, um, there's no point in shooting stuff that you're not going to use. Yeah, because yeah, because I can imagine there's no, there's nothing more powerful than like say the moment he crests the roof of his house and looks oh, yeah. at what he sees that he could put into words that we don't all get at that moment anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and I mean in terms of like the the like physical production and shooting of all of the under stuff, I mean that was all very challenging um, because it was we had to create a world. Um, a bit more like animation or something kind of to create the world for the story to take place within and then plonk your um, characters in there. Okay, and so what was the footprint of your shoot compared to obviously what I can see? Um, so like on... So within Yonder, like once they get there, obviously the other stuff was, was a mixture of sets and locations that were kind of in Ireland and stuff. But once they get into Yonder, that was a set of three... Um, facades of houses that we built in a warehouse in Belgium, in Liège, because they have like a, a tax credit in, in Belgium. And um, we got this other fund called the Wallonia Region Fund, which is for the area in Belgium, in Wallonia. So um, in the French speaking part. Um, and yeah, so we, we built um, three fronts of houses, gardens, which are like AstroTurf and, um, you know, three little walls, a bit of curb and some road. And that was basically it. Um, and we had to use that then for all of the reverse angles. So we only had one side of the street and just three houses. That's so, amazing. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was a nightmare. I was going to say, um, so, so I was going to say between you and um, you and your cinematographer McGregor, which with a name like McGregor to read that he's from Madrid, yeah was 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 a bit of a left turn i was thinking oh look at that a man's credited with it with just the singular name oh yeah 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 <laughs> he has a blanket he has a blanket that he's had since he's a kid that said mcgregor on it <laughs> so uh it became his nickname or something amazing so in terms of your conversations with mcgregor then what was that sort of look and feel and obviously the challenge of using what is essentially quite limited in terms of physical things to look at to make it ha give us the pretense of that huge world that these this couple are lost in yeah yeah it was um it wasn't like we even had all that much time to plan that stuff before shooting because basically as soon as um like the casting went on for ages and ages and then suddenly we had images of jesse and they were available in like three weeks to shoot or something like that you know where it's like oh and we had to then find the place to build the thing and like i was painting literally on my hands and knees painting the set the night before shooting um and so we were also trying to figure out while going to see the space and like, the, so the set wasn't even finished until we we're actually about to film it. So um, we had to kind of 
figure out how to use that space to the best of our ability um, while just looking at an empty space and looking at some like uh, early construction. And one of the ways we could do that was shooting on long lenses. Um, so we had like, a, I think a 140 and a 180, which we used quite a lot to kind of, to compress the space. Um, so as you shoot like on a set that is, isn't, you know, maybe it's about 120 meters long or something like that. Um, if you shoot on a wide lens, you're going to see off and into the, into the warehouse and stuff. Um, so there was that, but we also thought we were going to have 12 facades, um, which would have been, you know, one side of the street, the other side of the street, and then a kind of a T-junction. But um, construction turned out to be way more expensive than anticipated and, and all of that stuff. So um, a lot of it had to be figured out just on the, like, you know, while on set, like in the morning early. Um, the trickiest thing was probably shooting, you know, having to shoot into the same... Uh, in the same direction all the time when you've only got a small amount of that space um i had to like storyboard a scene and then try and film it but it was broken up across like some parts you know pov shots on the stage in belgium with the set some parts um with the camera outside of the car on the stage in belgium and then other parts in Ireland on a real location driving around for their close-ups and then in another location in Ireland for the aerial shots where we kind of replaced everything with map paintings it's almost like you were it's almost like you were making it for social distancing <laughs> yeah i know yeah and then stitch it all together and try yeah. and make it seem as if it was all all in the same place that's probably the most uh, technically challenging part so from but from from an artistic and we didn't have like unlimited vfx either of course yeah so we had to pick we had to choose our moments you know for scale um and like if we were shooting on location we'd go and shoot a bunch of um cutaways you know we'd just find some nice compositions shoot between some houses shoot it into the sun or whatever but because none of that existed um i had to kind of make some cutaways and photoshop myself and put them into the edit oh, right. and, okay. and choose them very carefully then um when we'd go and show the place is bigger um, because we only had a certain amount of VFX shots that we could actually complete. Okay, so the challenge, so if the challenge there was this idea of a, of a, of a, of a finite set to look like a endless housing estate called Yonder. Yes. The flip side of that, the flip side of the challenge of the film is, is the claustrophobia of being yeah. in the house, which is, which is a fairly, a, which is a, a tight confined space. So what were some of the things you kind of, I guess, most proud of in terms of what you're able to do to make that interesting for, for you? Or keep that interesting, uh, should I say? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that was in the script, that things keep on progressing and um, and becoming more difficult for the, for the characters. Hmm. Um, and then it's also a mix of like being inside and outside. So there's quite a lot of interior, exterior, interior, exterior. And... Um, so the exterior was in Belgium and the interior was in Ireland. So there's also the, that whole continuity thing. Um, and the in exterior hole was in Belgium and the interior hole was in Ireland. For the layperson listening, and, and how as a filmmaker do you keep in your head the notion of what you need for the whole film? 
with this idea that you're going to do it you're going to you, while you're in belgium you're just doing exteriors and then while you're in back in ireland you're able to do your interiors how are you managing to keep a mental picture of what the film that you're making is forming into um with great difficulty <laughs> <laughs> um well i mean there's the there's the script and there's the storyboards and then there's you know um your continuity person who is quite invaluable and then my editor started um after week one i think he started assembling the first week of the rushes so i, I was able to see um some scenes sometimes you know like i'd be able to play back a scene um that had been shot outside and like there's a scene where um Jesse grabs the boy and runs out of the house through the front door, out onto the street, into the car, and then back in. There's an argument with um, with Imogen, so that was one of the trickier ones where you had to. And there's you know a bunch of reverse angles and stuff that didn't exist that had to be also set up, um, and there had to be a quite, quite an intense scene. It was it was all handheld and stuff, so um, that was one of those ones where I think being able having an editor assemble some of the stuff and, and be able to watch it back and even um you know share with the actors you know had been happening yeah 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 you could say look it's is <laughs> previously in belgium you did this <laughs> just had that on my phone very roughly you know and just yeah yeah watch yeah. watch back um but at the same time you don't want to show the actors too much of, of themselves because you may not use that take or whatever you know now, so obviously, Imogen and, and, and Jesse are, are your leads, and uh, obviously, they're experienced actors with, with, with plenty of films under their belt. Um, but the young boy, um, whose name I, I'm not sure I can pronounce. Senan. Oh, it's literally Senan Jennings. Senan Jennings, yeah. I could have even had a stab there. Uh, so, Senan, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot riding on that young kid. So, what was your conversation with him about how he how he how he performed the role of young boy. Yeah, he was great. Um, I mean, I think that was always going to be a tough one to find a kid who could play the role because he was written as being able to kind of imitate the parents and he was, he looked like a little Pinocchio, you know, kind of a cheruby little perfect face and his hair all brushed to one side and all that kind of stuff. Um, so kind of creepy, but at the same time, we didn't want to... We wanted to do a, a kind of an original creepy demon child type thing, you know, because um, there's been there's a whole sub genre of, of um, demon child movies um, and we didn't want to default to any of that kind of stuff. So um, we basically had to cast for a long time to find him, first of all, and um, he sent in a self tape. It was really good. And then I got him into um into kind of perform some scenes and um, we recorded them and he was even better. He was, he was brilliant, but he was so different to nearly to all of the other kids. Like most of them, like he's only seven and most of the seven year olds are very nervous. They forget their lines, all that kind of thing. But Sandman had read, I think his mom must've like, you know, X out certain parts of the script or something, but he, he'd read it all and he totally got us. So he kind of knew who his character was. So he didn't, he only needed little nudges, you know, and I directed him the same as I directed the adults because um, he's intelligent and he, he's smart and he got it. So, um, you know, there's certain times when he'd have to be very still and I could literally say to him, you know, smile, smile less, smile a tiny bit less, smile a little bit more. 
hold that and he'd do that you know um and he, uh, he had great control of his of his face like that um so he was he was cool and he even he had some suggestions and he even he did a little bit of improv here and there as well and um like in in the weeks coming up to the shoot um his mom was telling me that like he he went very method you know he was he was um, imitating people when they were out shopping and all that kind of stuff. I, I was going to say, in terms of the, um, I mean, there's no spoiler here because it's in the trailer, but the uh, the high pitched scream that he perfects is that him or is that is that is that VFX I'm hearing? No, well, actually, he's toned down a tiny bit uh, with, you know, we had to like drop um, his pitch a little bit because his his real scream was it was even more high pitched and shrill really um yeah yeah and he he was he loved doing it as well <laughs> oh, so, but like i was, was a bit worried about his, his vocal cords you know if he did it too many times he's, the rest of his lines would be really hoarse but um no that's him all right yeah his voice then like as he's speaking was it ended up being a mixture of him and jonathan harris um for this kind of unnerving, um, almost like a adult's voice coming out of a child. So Jonathan Harris, who plays a rather, who plays the kind of, I guess, the bridge between our world and yonder, does um, does a, does does an amazing job at creepy, and I think it it, it it exposes two things. I think two very two very headline things as far as I as I see the the. Uh, the willingness for us all to want to be polite and to be impolite is worse than just going that he's weird we should just clear out but also that yeah. pressure we put ourselves under about buying a house the fact that he can he that him behaving like that didn't seem remotely unreal i mean obviously it's heightened for the purposes of the film but having queued up at house viewings in london 20 years ago I've met people not too dissimilar. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, do you ever see that thing, like Million Dollar uh, Property? I can't remember the name of the show. It's some American thing where the the estate agents all have this kind of um, alt-right, slick-back hair, quite a creepy kind of <laughs> demeanor to them. Um, but yeah, now Jonathan's great. He, he gave it that perfect kind of uncanny valley um, type performance between comedy and creepy like slightly um slightly like a bad trip version of an estate agent but it does you really do i mean without it being on the nose you really do expose this ridiculous pressure we put ourselves under for what is and obviously it dawns on on imogen and jesse's characters throughout the film that we were worried about this as far as making our life whole. Yeah, I mean, it's strange. It's bizarre. Like, what we were trying to do with the film was really, um, you know, turn the dial on reality to kind of amplify the way that we live our lives um, to the extent where we can see the absurdity of some of the things that we do um, and highlight the, yeah, the strangeness and the strange choices that we make and the pressure that society puts us under. Um now, and for for what? Exactly, exactly. Now, for all the craziness of yonder, you you use music as a way of reminding us of what the world is that that Gemma and and, and uh, Tom are missing. What, what what were the what were the decisions behind the choices you made there with the um, 
the sort of scar stuff. Oh, right, with the Vinci scar. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think originally in the scripts it was written that um, they listened to punk. And, you know, in the in the prep, you know, I was, I was putting together playlists and stuff like that of, of various tracks. Um, and I just felt too subversive and too cool of them or something to be into punk and um, but I did want them the music to um, contrast with the environment that they're in and yeah I just thought that that sort of vintage ska played well as something it was also used as a shortcut to show that they've known each other for a long time they're into the same music they can sing along to a track together Um. So the audience gets that they they you know they're not they haven't just met that afternoon or something, um, it, very quickly. <clears throat> so um, but Rudy has some great lyrics. You know, it's time to settle down, stop your messing around, um, and all of that. And then, um, Double O Seven, um, was actually written about a a riot that happened after um. Uh, a project, a building project, had been planned in um, in Jamaica, and it was going to ruin. It was going to ruin the whole kind of natural area and stuff. Um, and yeah, and then the final track, um, the XTC song "Complicated Game," is sort of sums up <laughs> the, the whole the whole film in a, in a weird way. But um, oh yeah, I wanted the the. For them, there was also always that dance scene where they danced around. It was like having a night off uh, from the child. So, and they dance in the headlight of the car. So, um, I wanted something that they could feel very free to dance around to without having to dance in a kind of um, performative way where they they feel they have to, you know, do something cool or do perform some sort of moves. Um, so I thought the sky worked well as just a way of that. They could just jump around and totally cut loose and be free um, before the, the power cuts and it all, <laughs> it all goes downhill for them again. Now, I know there's no real similarities between the two, other than, but, but in terms of the use of re- repetition and the passing of time, I thought mm-hmm. that there was there's, there's, this, you can make comparisons with, with Vivarium and Groundhog Day, you know, in terms of the Bill Murray character, obviously not, not anybody else. But obviously, that's not to suggest that Vivarium is about some sort of time loop. But certainly, their life doesn't progress while they're in the housing estate, which is the point of the repetition. Um, was that something? Was that something? Because showing their progression was 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 the audience, wasn't that? Was the audience's point of view? I suppose was how crazy. Yeah, the yeah. You kind of had to put them, kind of put the audience through what they're going through. So it's a tricky balance, you know, um, with repetition because it needs a certain amount of repetition to um, get across that idea um, that you know they have to they're living this life of just you know doing the same thing every day and um, but at the same time for things to progress during that repetition. So like each cycle, a new thing has happened. Um, that takes you deeper into the story um but yeah time was one of the was a really tricky thing to kind of deal with in in making the film because um you can't even use even just time passing you know in in an edit you there's all these tricks that people use you know like having 
light streaming in a window and bird song outside and the audience goes, oh, it's morning. Or um, there's traffic or there's insect sounds or there's um, something like that. But we weren't able to use any of those things um, really to indicate. And the, the weather is kind of the same there all the time. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You, um, were, you, were, you were like doing it in a painting almost. Yeah, yeah. But that was also part of the the kind of aesthetic too to try and create this um, environment that was kind of dreamy and as if they were trapped in a painting yeah it's, it's quite it's yeah because they're, they're, know, they're inspired the by a surrealist yeah painting, i was gonna but, say they're like the organic matter that's got that's having to sort of deal with it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um so the only one of the one of the things we used was that the the boy grows at the speed of a dog so the people can relate to that that you know you get a puppy um it's tiny you know a year later it's like a fully grown dog now this is this is again this isn't a spoiler but, but just i'm just fascinated because this is again because this is in the trailer is the idea of delivering a baby in a box yeah that is that is really really creepy yeah i think that was actually one of the first kind of images i think um because i was talking to Garrett about this just recently and um he remembers that when he started writing, he just got to that point. That was basically it. There was going to be like an estate agent brings them into a place, shows them around. And at some point, a baby, a box arrives and they open it and there's a newborn baby. In it. So that was um, a kind of an image for the film um, very early on. But actually doing it for shooting it was another story, you know, the parents uh, standing by the side of the set while we filled up this warehouse with uh, with smoke and then uh, put their baby, their little tiny baby into a box and then sealed the lid. It's kind of like the it's kind of like the inverse of under the skin, isn't it? You know, in the way that Scarlett Hansen sees a baby and does nothing about it because she's not human. Whereas obviously Tom and uh, Tom and Gemma very much are and and the human instinct when a baby's vulnerable is to want to care for it. Yeah, yeah. And that and the boy sort of takes advantage of that, you know, mm. of of the humanness uh of the of the young couple. Well look, sir, let's uh, let's remind people then how and how and when can they see uh Vivarium? It is available on all the major streaming platforms, uh Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, um etc um i think it's on sky and you know playstation and all those kind of things and um it's also coming out on blu-ray and dvd on the 25th of may and is there anything new or in development you can tell us about now yeah um we've started we're starting to cast uh, a, a new project called nocebo mm -hmm. which uh, we've been working on for the past couple of years it's um a supernatural thriller about a fashion designer and a Filipino nanny. So um, we're just, we're, you know, figuring out how and when we'll be able to do that with all of the kind of current production restrictions in place. Yeah, right. sure, I'll just caveat that for anyone listening to this three years from now. Um, we're, yeah, exactly. We're, we're in yeah. the lockdown of 2020 right now. Yeah. So um, well, there's a lot of, you know, phone calls and stuff back and forth and figuring out um, what we can do where and what we can change. We're probably going to have to change some elements. It's sort of, it was set between um, London and the Philippines. So it, it really depends on when restrictions move and all that kind of thing. Um, 
and we are working we're in that kind of cycle of uh, going over the the acts we're on the second act draft three or something of and we're working on the the second act of this new um project called uh, goliath myself and gareth which is a sort of dystopian fable um so i don't know which we'll do first probably nocebo then well look best of, best of those projects and best of luck with the uh with the the digital and uh, DVD release of Vivarium. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Brookflits podcast. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com.